Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 50 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? Hi, good. The heat is on and no whiskey but tea in hand for our recording session today. Uh, It's good. I'm concerned. Are you telling me how uh, thirsty it's going to make us? We're both having a a cup of English breakfast in our respective homes and uh, yeah, I'm, I think it might be subconscious, but I'm feeling parched now all of a sudden. <laughs> 30 seconds after I told you. I read that it makes you really thirsty and then like I've been struggling here off the air the last couple of weeks, dying of thirst halfway through, um, running out of a litre of water. <laughs> but, you know, we'll see how we go. <laughs> and we might have to take a, a bit of a break halfway and uh, rehydrate ourselves. So <laughs> we'll, see how we, we'll see how we go. Um, we've got some Patreon shout-outs this week. We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Kate Howard and Alice Flockhart. Thanks for the support. Much appreciated. Before we get into today's case, we just wanted to advise listeners that uh, this episode contains some extremely graphic content, uh, particularly the descriptions of uh, the sexual assaults and subsequent murders in this twisted tale. So we'd encourage everyone to exercise self-care and to look after themselves when listening to this episode. Episode 50 today, Chloe, a milestone for us. Yeah. And we've got uh, we've got a really big one, a big in every way, this case. Uh, we've had a few requests for a WA-based case from listeners, and, and this one is probably the biggest uh, in WA history, one of at least, uh, and that's that of the Morehouse murders, the twisted tale of killer couple David and Catherine Burney. There's quite a few famous killer couples in true crime history, Bonnie and Clyde perhaps the most famous, but the likes of Fred and Rosemary West from England and Paul and Carla Homolka from Canada are probably better examples when comparing the Burnies. And David and Catherine Burney were every bit as calculating, brutal and sadistic as the aforementioned, with a long history of crimes and victims, a tally which could actually be twice as big as what is publicly known and accepted. We'll get to all of that and a whole lot more, but uh, first things first, we're going to go back to 1986 to begin this story. (laughs) 
1986, Perth and the whole of Western Australia was flying high, booming at this time, with the likes of iron ore magnate Lang Hancock and the occasionally corrupt Alan Bond flexing their business muscles. Yachts were docked plenty in Fremantle post-Australia's 1983 America's Cup win, which Alan Bond actually bankrolled. In the news, the number of disappearances of local Perth women was starting to raise many eyebrows. And then, news of the bodies hit the headlines. The body of the fourth victim was discovered in a pine plantation north of the city. Police believe the women were forced into the graves and their throats cut before being buried. David Burney was born on the 16th of February 1951. He was the eldest of five kids to Johnny and Margaret Burney. The Burney family lived in a semi-rural area named Waddle Grove. This was on the outskirts of Perth. And the family did not have a good name locally. They were known as dysfunctional, with rumours rife about the family's promiscuity, alcoholism and even talks of incest. Johnny Burney was a frail old-timer. He had this Quasimodo-style genetic arched back condition that made him appear really small. He frequented the local Baptist church, but really this was all he did. He was described as being as socially crippled as he was physically. Margaret Burney, well, she was a real peach, described as a coarse, chain-smoking alcoholic with a gravelly voice. She was a filthy and unkempt woman who would palm off her dirty, starving babies to strangers on the bus so she could read comic books and puff away on a bunch of Winnie Blues. So it's not a huge leap to picture the home life of the Burnies at this time. We're talking about an absolute hovel, the family were living in practically squalor, irregular meals, the fridge left open for kids and dogs alike to help themselves to whatever was left. While Margaret Burney was losing two of her female children, David Burney's sisters, to state care and paying taxi drivers for fares with sexual favours, a stunted David Burney began lying, cheating and stealing his way through life. He had to. It's all he knew how to do to get by. His inhibited personality and strange behaviours were on display early on at Sunday school at the aforementioned Baptist church. Teacher Arlene Collins noted what appeared to be early signs of psychological issues with David Burney. Creepy drawings, aggressive and violent body language, ripping crayons and pencils through books and papers, a real pent-up rage from a very young age. Couple this with further suggestions of sexual abuse, that incest we spoke of earlier with the Burney family, and it's probably no surprise that the eldest, David, was committing crimes such as petty thefts and burglaries at the age of eight and serving time in youth detention. At the age of 12, David met a local girl named Catherine Harrison. She was also 12. The Burneys had moved house from one hovel to another and she lived nearby. Catherine had also had a tough childhood, a real pillar to post-youth. Her mum, Doreen, died when she was just two. She died giving birth to Catherine's sibling. Catherine's father, Harold, he couldn't cope after this and sent her away to live with her grandparents. They were said to be extremely strict on Catherine. There'd be an ongoing on-and-off-again relationship between Catherine and her father with him wanting her back, then not, then wanting her back again. At age 10, after a custody dispute, Harold won sole custody of Catherine and she was shipped off to live with him in South Africa. And it wasn't all international travels and fun times for Catherine, make no mistake. She came from a poor environment, 
was seemingly treated like an item, a material good, but not really loved. As such, she formed this kind of desperate disposition. No other kids would play with her, and she was ultimately a sulky, scrawny, and unpleasant child. And while she remained scruffy and scrappy, she did meet a friend, eventually, in David Burney at the age of 12. David, a weaselly-looking, beady-eyed sixth grader, already had a criminal record as long as his greasy mop of mousy brown hair. Catherine and David would form an immediate bond, finding in one another something they had never had in life to that point. They were almost like soulmates. Seemingly, they had bonded in their loneliness and despair. Catherine's father didn't like David and made it well known, but this only served to further strengthen their bond. By the age of 14, the pair were having sex and going on massive stealing and car theft sprees. At 15, David left school, or in all likelihood was asked to not come back. So he went to work at Ascot Racecourse, the horse stables there, and at the time this was home to Perth trainer Eric Parnham. David had hopes of becoming an apprentice jockey. He certainly had the diminutive frame for it, but probably not the attitude. None of the other workers at the stables liked David at all. They considered him to have an arrogant, shitty personality. He wasn't just mean to his colleagues, but the horses too. He'd kick and punch them, jerk on their bridles. It's a shame that one of the thoroughbreds didn't kick David in his little pea-sized head because it was around this time that his criminality really began to escalate. David was staying at a local boarding house when he worked at the stables and he and some of the other apprentices went to dinner one night after work to a local woman's house. Her name was Mrs Bridges. She was in her 70s, and she was obviously quite the generous soul to put on a feed for the youngsters this evening. But David hadn't had his fill. After dinner, when everybody had gone home, he came back to Mrs Bridges' house, naked with a stocking over his head, and tried to break in and sexually assault the 70-year-old woman he'd just eaten dinner with. Here's the tale as trainer Eric Parnham recalled. I should tear it up, he's a runt. I said you'd step on him and you'd kill him. Because she was a pretty big woman. And uh, she said, luckily I had the little dog. Oh, she loved the little dog. And apparently... When he was going through the window and she slammed the window, the little dog was on the window too. And he, uh, Tom Shaw was next door in those days in the house and he, he could hear the dog. He was going mad. So David left the stable shortly after this and he continued on with a life of petty crime with Catherine, gradually escalating with their car thefts and shoplifting. David was right into hardcore pornography by this time and a paraphiliac with some kinky sexual proclivities. David was in and out of prison at this time too. He and Catherine had been caught with uh, oxy torches trying to crack a safe at a drive-in cinema. Consequently, David did a short stretch, broke out of prison and went on another spree with Catherine thereafter. Turns out they had some kind of grand plan to blow something sky high. And when they were apprehended, they had on them a bunch of wigs, clothing for disguises, presumably, 100 sticks of gelignite, 120 detonators and three fuses. David Burney, with his history, copped two and a half years for a number of offences in addition to what we mentioned a moment ago. But Catherine, she got a much shorter stint of six months. It was said that Catherine was also pregnant with another man's baby at this time. 
She actually gave birth while in prison. The baby was taken away from her by welfare workers. Catherine knew what she had done was wrong, but she loved David Burney so much there was nothing she wouldn't do for him. So clearly these two had a strong bond, but it'll be interesting to see as we go along where that dynamic ends up because you could very easily think at this stage it was David negatively influencing Catherine. And perhaps it was to an extent, but as we'll come to see, Catherine has her own motivations and bag of tricks, and when they combine with David's, they're quite literally deadly. But for now, at this point, Catherine had managed to break free from David Burney while inside with the help of some support services, and when she got out, she began working as a live-in housekeeper for a family in Fremantle. While she was living and working here, she struck up a relationship with the son of her employer, His name was Don McLaughlin. He was 10 years older than Catherine, and by Catherine's 21st birthday, her and Don would be married. They would go on to have seven kids, and around the time of the birth of her first, little Donnie, this time thereafter was said to be the happiest in Catherine's life. But that would come to an abrupt end when little Donnie was accidentally killed in front of Catherine. He was backed over by a visitor's car in their driveway, as I understand. It was a tragic accident. And this would have had a huge impact on Catherine, a massive impact on her psychologically. Despite this, the couple were said to have lived for a number of years after this in a seemingly happy marriage, until about a month after the birth of their uh, their seventh child. Catherine went into hospital for a hysterectomy at this time. When Don came in to visit her, Catherine's hand was being held by a visitor, none other than David Burney. Now, I think Don knew who David was from some time before because he'd caught David and Catherine together at some point, possibly, and and apparently given David a bit of a hiding. David had gotten out of jail a little later than Catherine, as we said, and he'd gone on to marry too at the age of 21. Her name was Kerry, and this was no wine and dine romance. They'd only known each other for about a month when he popped the question. By this time in the early 80s, David Burney was very much a lost cause. Jail hadn't done any good for him. He had this bitter, ingrained hardness about him, not an affable chap by any stretch. But he was planning to go straight and make a go of things, apparently. He settled down with Kerry. They had a daughter who they named Tanya. He was said to be quite a loving father to her. Sexually, Kerry noted there was nothing weird about the couple's life in that respect. David suggested a threesome a few times, which in itself isn't necessarily odd behaviour, but it's certainly relevant for later in this story. But then something very interesting happened, and that was when David was working on an oil barge. A large drum fell and hit him on the head, which opened him right up like a sliced cantaloupe. After this time, according to Kerry, there was a progressive change to his personality. David began starting fights with Kerry, niggly little things, things that hadn't mattered before, He began having affairs, openly, several at a time indeed. David even advertised for sex in the local newspaper. And this all came to a head when David brought his 16-year-old girlfriend home to live with his wife and daughter. He moved his daughter into the bedroom with Kerry and moved into his daughter's bedroom with this new girlfriend, Chris Dawson Styles. This crushed Kerry, obviously, and brought their marriage to an abrupt end. She moved out with their daughter, Tanya, and soon after this, David Burney was together with Catherine again. Catherine, meanwhile, had just had her aforementioned hysterectomy after having seven children and losing one tragically, but having a seemingly happy marriage for a number of years to Don McLaughlin. But at some point, it became evident that Catherine had been unhappy for some time. 
Either that or the hold David Burney had over her or the lure he presented was just too great. One day, out of nowhere, she left Don and all of the kids, abandoned them completely to go off to be with David Burney. There was varying reports on how all this went down exactly, but in the end, the result was the same. She left Don and the six kids and went to be with David. Now, jury's out on whether Catherine and David, the kindred spirits that they obviously are, had actually completely dropped out of contact and reunited after all these years, or if they had actually maintained contact. While there's no reports that they had, no way to prove it, if I was a betting man, I'd be wagering that they had in fact been in touch over the years to some extent, probably with varied frequency, but that'd be my guess. I don't think this all came out of nowhere. David and Catherine moved into a house at number three Morehouse Street in Willoughby. This is on the outskirts of Perth. At this time, the property was a ramshackle two-bedroom white brick bungalow, unkempt, flanked with weeds and wilting flowers. Catherine changed her surname to Bernie via deed poll, despite her and David never actually marrying. David was working at a wreckers, seemingly well regarded in his job, but at home things had really turned for the Bernie soulmates, reunited after their years apart, trying to live these normal, socially acceptable lives. The place had quickly turned into squalor, a real cesspit, food scraps everywhere, everything dirty. Kerry was stunned to see the state of the place when she brought young Tanya over to visit her father. Catherine and David were beginning to live out a number of sadomasochistic sexual fantasies. David's appetite for sex was growing and growing. David and Catherine begrudgingly took in David's younger brother Jamie for a short stint around this time. Jamie had just got out of prison himself. He was a convicted child sex offender and when he got out he had nowhere to go. Jamie later recalled and alleged that David had raped him as a child and that David had to have sex four to five times per day. He said that he'd seen David use hypodermic needles with anaesthetic and injected himself in the penis before having sex. And on Jamie's 21st birthday, his present from his brother was Catherine. That was Jamie's present. He got Catherine for the night. So we've got two extremely dysfunctional people feeding off one another here. They both have a long criminal history and an equally long history of enabling one another. But as we'll see, as adults now, having come back together the pair were beginning to develop a clear taste for their preferred sexual proclivities, but these wouldn't remain in the bedroom to be kept between themselves, nor would they remain non-violent. In late 1985, Audrey Schofield was working at a real estate agency in Perth. She was doing secretarial reception duties, and one day, a person who she probably first thought was a prospective property purchaser was lingering outside the agency windows, and he kept looking at her. This man was a sharp-featured, beady-eyed little douchebag, and he kept returning. Three days he lingered outside for... But he also came into the office on occasion, one time trying to convince Audrey to leave with him to go and look at a house. Audrey became understandably quite unsettled at this little dweeb's continual presence, so she organised on the fourth day for her husband to come down and stake the joint out, awaiting the return of this creepy little rat. Sure enough, like clockwork, who rounded the corner for a perv as predicted? We know this man to be David Burney, 
but Audrey and no one else knew at this time. Her husband confronted him and David took off like a scared little urban rabbit, hightailing down the street never to be seen near the real estate agency again. This minor incident was really the beginning of the Bernies Road in choosing their victims and forming their MO. But it's important to note the timeline here because we've seen a pretty quick escalation into depravity since David and Catherine had gotten back together. Their first known and publicly confirmed victim after this stalking of Audrey is around one year later. So keep that in the back of your mind as we go along here because we're going to circle back around towards the end of the tale and re-examine this time period and cast some shade on if this first known victim was indeed the Bernie's first actual victim in reality. But for now, we move on to October the 6th, 1986. Mary Nielsen had come to the wrecking yard to buy some tyres. David Burney, working at this time, got talking to the 22-year-old Mary and told her he had four tyres back at his place. She should come and have a look, and if she wanted them, he'd help her fit them. Mary was a university student, and she worked part-time at a delicatessen, so any chance to save a few bucks was probably welcomed. She came from a good family with relatively affluent parents who were both TAFE lecturers and they were actually overseas on holiday in the UK at this time. So again, without them around, Mary needed these tyres and was probably trying to think of a, a creative and cheap way of getting it solved rather quickly. But this whole setup from David Burney to get Mary back to their house on Morehouse Street was a trap. As soon as the pair went inside, the attack on Mary began with her being held at knife point and tied to a bed. With the knife at her throat, David proceeded to rape Mary repeatedly, with Catherine cheering him on from the sidelines and occasionally intervening to stimulate David as he raped Mary. After the pair had finished their first attack on Mary, David drove Mary's car back into town and dumped it near the Perth Central Police Station. Catherine, meanwhile, stood guard over Mary as she remained chained to the bed back at Morehouse Street. When David returned, he raped Mary again, and again Catherine watched. But Catherine's participation in all of this wasn't merely observation. She'd been planning this, plotting this. In fact, she'd even read this book called Perfect Murder as inspiration. This was well before them luring and attacking Mary. Catherine had in her mind that this book would serve as a kind of blueprint for her and David. So it was safe to say the next part of their plan was just that, planned. They bound and gagged Mary and drove her out to Glen Eagles National Park. Here, David raped Mary again before strangling her with a rope and stabbing her through the heart. This was apparently to allow any gases within the body to escape as she decomposed, he told Catherine. He'd done some reading too, apparently, to find this fact. The pair dug a shallow grave with a shovel and mattock and buried Mary there in the darkness. Mary Nielsen was reported missing, but the Burnies weren't suspected at this stage. They wasted no time in continuing to refine their tactics, trawling a circuit around the Stirling and Canning highways, refining their abduction tactics, with Catherine giving potential victims a sense of ease. It was a married couple in the car, right? Not some creepy bloke or blokes. What could go wrong? Two weeks later, on the 20th of October 1986, so pretty quick turnaround after their first supposed victim here, the Burnies are at it again when they pick up 15-year-old Susanna Candy. She was hitchhiking along the Stirling Highway in Claremont, right along the Burnies' beat. Susanna was just days away from her 16th birthday, and she'd just finished work this evening. 
She was said to be an exceptional student and lived in Nedlands with her parents, two brothers and sister. Her father was actually one of the top ophthalmic surgeons in Western Australia at this time. This attack followed very much the same MO. The Bernies kidnapped Susanna and took her back to Morehouse Street with Catherine luring her, acting as the reassuring bait, essentially. By this time, the Bernies had formed a special coded phrase for when things were about to get real. And when I say real, I mean violent. This was where we see the dynamic we mentioned earlier kind of shift. It was essentially Catherine who seemingly picked and gave the green light on the attacks David could begin to carry out. The code phrase was, I've got the munchies, which Catherine would say to David as an okay to proceed. Once back at Morehouse Street, David raped Susanna with Catherine again taunting from the sidelines. She also began taking notes on the attacks by this time. They chained Susanna to the bed and the following morning they forced her to write letters to people she knew and to call her parents, telling them that she was heading out of town or whatever for a few days. So this was very calculated, extremely organised and, for a lack of better word, clever in the sense that it mitigated the suspicion around the inevitable missing person and confused the subsequent search. David again raped Susanna, but this time Catherine climbed onto the bed and joined them. David tried to strangle Susanna with a nylon cord. There was a massive struggle. She really fought and the pair ended up forcing her a bunch of sleeping pills to subdue her. Once she was unconscious, Catherine tightened the rope around her throat until she was dead. This was later said to be a test for Catherine and a declaration of her undying love for David. She later said it felt exactly as expected and she felt nothing. After this, they drove Susanna's body out to the same bushland and buried her not far away from Mary Nielsen's body. Susanna is again reported missing in due course, but at this stage, there is no connection made, no bodies discovered, and the Bernies continued cruising the streets, hunting for their next victim. It'd only be 10 days later, on the 31st of October, that the pair would kidnap 31-year-old Nolene Patterson. Nolene was standing beside her car on the Canning Highway in East Fremantle, having run out of petrol when the Bernies pulled up and offered a hand. Nolene had just finished a shift at the Nedlands Golf Club, where she worked as a bar manager. Nolene lived with her mother in the nearby town of Bicton. She was very attractive and popular, described as charming by many golf club members. She'd worked previously as a flight attendant, actually, for Ansett Airlines and also for Alan Bond on his private jet for a couple of years. David Burney was instantly entranced with Nolene's beauty. She was everything that Catherine Burney, the scrawny, scruffy and scrappy girl next door, was not. Again, a similar story followed. The Bernies took Nolene back to Morehouse Street, where David repeatedly raped her, and she was gagged and then chained to the bed. But Nolene wasn't just a pretty face. She had a sharp mind also, and she cleverly decided to try a bit of reverse psychology on David Burney. Nolene probably realised she was in mortal danger here, so she made a play for David, tried to befriend him and lure him into thinking that she liked him too. This almost worked except for the reaction Catherine had to it. She got mighty angry at the thought of David wanting someone else. During the three days they held Nolene captive, Catherine repeatedly tried to bash Nolene, but David wouldn't let her. David and Catherine then had a wild argument amidst the fiery jealousy and Catherine stormed out. 
She returned shortly after and proposed the bizarre ultimatum to David that it was either her or Nolene, and she would kill herself if David wanted Nolene. David relented and force-fed Nolene a bunch of sleeping pills. Catherine then strangled her to death. They again drove Nolene's body out to the bushland to bury it, but they took her to a different spot because it was said David thought of her differently. Catherine thought of her differently too, but not positively. She took pleasure, it was said, in throwing sand in Nolene's face when they buried her body. The following day at work, colleagues of David's noticed that he was limping. He'd hurt his foot while disposing of Nolene's body. These colleagues queried it, but David fobbed it off as no biggie and just kept on about his day. He was keeping incredibly calm on face value amidst this devastatingly brutal crime spree him and Catherine were on. Just four days later, on November the 5th, 1986, the Burnies lured their next victim, 21-year-old Denise Brown. So we're seeing escalation here in the time frames. Each attack is getting much closer together, the high from their previous murder clearly wearing off faster each time at this point. Denise accepted a lift from the Burnies from outside the Stoned Crow Winehouse in Fremantle on the Stirling Highway. She was described as a fun-loving girl who enjoyed dances and nightclubs. She also worked part-time as a computer operator and lived in a share house in Nedlands with her boyfriend and another couple. She had a happy life and was a very trusting person. Hence, thumbing a ride to get a lift wouldn't have been a stretch for Denise, especially back at this time in the 80s. The Burnies followed their typical playbook and took Denise back to Morehouse Street, where they forced her to take off all of her clothes and jewellery. Catherine made a meticulous list of Denise's personal effects. This notebook was almost becoming their little trophy, their reflection book to relive the crimes out of. David again raped Denise with Catherine watching. They chained her to the bed overnight and the following day, forced her to call her friend and say she was heading away for a few days. The Burnies then drove Denise out to a pine forest plantation at Wanneroo, where David raped her again before slitting her throat. David and Catherine then dug a shallow grave and put Denise's body in, and just as they threw the first shovel load of dirt onto her, Denise sat up in the grave, stunning the pair. David ran to the car and retrieved an axe before returning and hitting Denise twice with it in the head to finally kill her. By this time, as we can see, the Burnies were starting to slip and get sloppy. They were having disagreements, the attacks were becoming closer to one another, and things weren't going as smoothly. The disappearances were also now starting to garner some media attention locally. Police weren't coming forward and connecting them at this point, and indeed they were getting their noses out of joint when the media began printing their speculations. But it turned out the media was right. The 10th of November, 1986. 17-year-old Kate Moyer had just enjoyed a night out with friends attending the Cottesloe Pub and the Claremont Hotel to see a band. Around 10.30pm, feeling the evening was coming to an end, Kate accepted a lift from a couple of friends who were in one of the bands uh, and they offered to drive her home. Not wanting to be a pain in their backside, Kate suggested the friends simply drop her at the end of her road and she'd walk the rest of the way. This would turn out to be a huge mistake. At some point, Kate realised the walk was perhaps a tad longer than she anticipated in her drunken state, so she decided to thumb for a lift. Next thing she knew, a car slinked around the corner, curb crawling, and inside she saw a couple. 
They seemed normal and safe and offered her a ride home. They got to Kate's house and she tried to get out of the car, thanking them for the ride, but there was no door handle on the inside of the car. She couldn't open it, and one of them suggested she try the window handle to open the door, but there was no window handle either. The next thing Kate knew, the male had grabbed her and whipped a knife out of his Ugg boot and placed it at her throat. They then drove to a place called The Lookout, which was half a kilometre away. Here, the female got out of the car, retrieved cable ties and a blanket from the boot of the car, forced Kate out of the car and restrained her. They then made Kate lie down in the back seat before driving off. Kate thought she was going to die and couldn't believe how stupid she'd been not taking her friends up on the lift to her house in the first place. She asked the couple if they were just going to rape her or kill her. They said, we'll only rape you if you're good. The couple, who referred to themselves by the aliases of Margaret and John, but we know to be David and Catherine Burney, drove Kate to their house on Morehouse Street. They took her inside, passed a pair of big scary guard dogs. Once inside, they cut her cable ties, undressed her down to her underwear and singlet, bagged all of her clothes up and labelled them. Then they made her have a shower while Catherine watched. After the shower, the couple proceeded to badger Kate for all of her personal details. Name, age, address, if she had a boyfriend, if she was taking contraception, the whole works. Dire Straits played in the background as the couple made Kate sit and watch Rambo, First Blood with them. They smoked cigarettes, bongs, and spoke of other women who Kate presumed to be victims of the pair. They then made Kate dance for them and she cried while doing so. All of the while, the couple left random knives on the floor, almost tempting Kate to go for one and try to defend herself. It was around 12.30am that David Burney raped Kate Moyer. Catherine, again, sat on the end of the bed and watched. She made copious notes on the repeated attacks, telling Kate it was to improve their sex life. She was finding out what turned David on. One sickening thing worth pointing out here especially in the context of hearing the words attack and rape, David Burney very much made love to Kate. Those are not our words of choosing and we'll explain the context as to how we know that later in the story, but he wasn't violent during the act itself. He was complimentary and trying to be a lover of sorts. Kate refused to participate in this. This kind of makes the whole thing even more disgusting, if that's even possible. The idea that this guy thought that he was doing this for anyone else's pleasure than for him and Catherine is almost beyond belief. Kate was made to shower again after the attack, again with Catherine watching before she was then chained to the bed. The Burnies left her crying but, at Kate's request, gave her some paper and a pencil to write some goodbye notes to everyone she knew and loved. Kate was adamant she was going to die and at some point she decided to try something. Scream. David came in pretty quickly at the sound of her bellowing and raped her again. Catherine wasn't there this time and he said the sleeping arrangements had changed. After the attack, wearing his mustard-coloured robe, David handcuffed himself to Kate, force-fed her a bunch of sleeping pills, took a bunch himself, then he fell asleep next to her. He stayed all night. Kate, however, was savvy enough to not swallow these sleeping pills. She spat them out and hid them under the mattress somehow, and laid there awake all night next to David, crying and not getting a wink of sleep. The next morning, it's seemingly business as usual for the Burnies. They forced Kate to make a phone call to her parents, saying that she had gotten drunk and stayed at a friend's house. David Burney then left for work, like a normal day. 
This made Kate feel her odds had improved ever so slightly, being alone with just Catherine, the woman now. Unbeknownst to the Bernies and Kate, the police were starting to look into these disappearances now, probably with the number of reports and media pressure, there was certainly this increased feeling that there could be something more going on, perhaps a serial killer on the loose. Kate, meanwhile, sat at Morehouse Street with Catherine. They again watched some movies, Rocky, I believe. The Bernies were clearly riding to Sly at this time. A news report came on throughout the day about Denise Brown. The report mentioned the last known place Denise had been seen, and Catherine made a comment about a big girl like that being able to take care of herself. Kate, whilst being a funny girl and a bit of a rebel, was also extremely intelligent. She had a very high IQ, did Kate Moyer. She picked up on the fact straight away that from the photo the report showed on TV, it was just Denise Brown's face. You couldn't tell if she was a big or little girl from that photo. It was at this moment she thought for sure that the Bernies, this Margaret and John, had indeed killed Denise Brown. Kate's feeling of despair might have taken over someone else, but not her. If she was going to die, she was going to bring this pair of lunatics down with her. So she began befriending Catherine, and eventually she convinced her to untie her. Kate then began leaving personal effects around the house as evidence of her being there, kind of like a trail of breadcrumbs for investigators. She wrote notes in code, using trees and ferns as symbols. She left the driver's licence of a friend hidden, lipstick under a beanbag, and a packet of smokes in the manhole in the roof. And all the while, she was being nice and compliant with Catherine, and Catherine let her guard down. She even let Kate come out the back with her, untied, and they had a smoke together. At this time, Catherine Burney had been selling a bit of marijuana for some extra cash. There was a knock at the door shortly after the pair came back inside. It was one of Catherine's clients, there to do a deal with her. Catherine quickly sent Kate to her room, but foolishly didn't chain her to the bed. And it was at this point that Kate Moyer used this opportunity to try and escape and run to freedom. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Kate escaped out of a nearby window. She concussed herself on the driveway. She ran barefoot in her black leggings, singlet and underwear to some nearby houses, got no response there. She got into a tangle with the dog and then ran to an Electrolux vacuum cleaner store up the road and sought assistance from a salesman. 17-year-old girl stumbled in on Monday morning after she said she had escaped from a house in Willoughby. The receptionist at the shop said the girl was dishevelled and crying and said she had knocked on the door of four houses but each had refused to let her in. She had finally found the shops and police were called immediately. Kate was collected by the police and she told her story to them. But she was not taken particularly seriously at first. 
The police brought in the only female police officer in the region at this time. This was 22-year-old Laura Hancock, who was just a junior constable, fresh out of the academy for just a few months. Laura was tasked with taking Kate's statement, and it was actually the first statement she'd ever taken. The advice Laura had received from her superiors was this girl Kate had a bizarre story to tell and to stitch her up for a false report. These words were verbatim and would linger on Laura's mind for years to come. Kate and Laura sat, and Laura listened to her story. Kate looked drained, tired, blank, but she was very clinical and factual. She was sure these people were going to kill her and that there had been other victims. To Laura, Kate absolutely oozed honesty and came across as saying matter-of-factly, these are the people, go and get them. It wasn't a tale of self-pity. Laura pleaded with her superiors to believe Kate's story and they didn't want to, with Laura even being told that the persistence would potentially cost her her career in the police force. But it was her persistence that paid off and the details that Kate was able to relay that got Laura's superiors to perk up and call detectives to go to the Morehouse Street address. One interesting morsel worth noting is that although the Burnies had used aliases, Kate had seen David Burney's name on the sleeping pill bottle and she'd remembered that. So police were pretty quickly able to look them up and get around to the house. But Kate still had to drive around there in the police vehicle and identify the property still as well, just to be sure. Two detectives named Ferguson and Kadich were tasked with going around to number three Morehouse Street in Willoughby. There was no one home at first, so they staked the place out. Catherine, meanwhile, had panicked when she discovered Kate had escaped. She called David at work. He left work abruptly, telling a colleague, Karen Lloyd, that the dogs had gotten out and he'd be back shortly. He returned to work, seemingly calm, and said everything was all good. Catherine, though, had been tasked with destroying any evidence they had of their crimes. That was with the exception of what Kate Moyer had planted around the property, however. During their stakeout, Kadich and Ferguson noticed a scrawny, scruffy, brown-haired woman return to the house at Morehouse Street. She had a glazed-over look in her eyes, clearly on something, and she was snarly and snappy when they approached her to talk. They didn't waste any time in executing the warrant they had in hand and promptly began searching the Bernies' residence. The fireplace inside had been recently lit, which stood out right away to police, because it was a warm day, early November in Perth, somewhere around 30 degrees Celsius. No one would have the fire going for warmth. There'd clearly been some evidence burnt inside. It was later theorised that it could be these notebooks Catherine kept that had been burned, but this was never proven. Kate had given police an incredible amount of detail, not just the things she'd planted around the place, the movie they'd most recently watched, the details of chains, locks, numbers on the locks, sleeping pills she'd been given, brand and all. The police found all of this stuff and it completely corroborated Kate's version of events. Very intelligent of her. Catherine Burney was arrested on the strength of Kate's story. David Burney was also arrested at work and they were both taken into custody. Detectives questioned the pair for hours and seemingly got nowhere. Paul Ferguson and Vince Kadich did these interviews and it was quite passive at first. They tried to build a rapport with David Burney and there were clearly cracks in the stories as David Burney said Kate Moyer had been there, yes, but of her own free will and she'd had consensual sex with him. Catherine Burney, meanwhile, denied even knowing who Kate Moyer was and she'd never been to their house. 
The police needed a confession because all they had was weak circumstantial evidence of this abduction, but the detectives knew these two had been involved in other recent disappearances too. They could just feel it. The tone of the interview changed when Ferguson began to grill David Burney about Denise Brown's disappearance. He knew Burney had something to do with this and probably others. Kadish then decides to throw out a line that he didn't think anything of. He didn't think this would result in anything, but it was how he was feeling as the sun was beginning to set in Perth and they'd been interviewing the pair separately for hours now. Kadich said to David Burney, Okay, let's grab a shovel and go dig up some shallow graves, get this over with. Words to that effect. And David Burney turned around and said, Okay, there's four of them, admitting to the murders of the four victims we've just covered. He cupped his face and sobbed. The detectives were astonished and asked for the victims' names, and David named all four of them. David agreed to take the police to the sites where the bodies were buried. Catherine, who was completely concerned with David this entire time, all she wanted to do was see him. She, she didn't want a bar of any of this. She even called him a weak bastard when police strategically walked them past one another on their way out to the vehicles to drive to the locations. David Burney was in the lead vehicle with detectives, Catherine in the vehicle behind. They went to Denise Brown's body first, then to Mary Nielsen. Further down from there was Sue Candy, and then to the location where Nolene Patterson had been buried. David was calm and accurate in his explanations of what had occurred during the site visits. Catherine was calm too, emotionless. She didn't shed a tear, but she became noticeably agitated at the sight of Nolene's grave. She spat on the young woman's grave and called her either a bitch or a slut. So this was very telling. Here, the depths of Catherine's darkness were really on display. Kate Moyer, now at home safe, albeit scarred for life, found out from her father the following morning that police had dug up four bodies. The Burnies were charged with the four murders, and when they had their day in court, they were brought in under cloaks. Catherine's temperament was wild, like a banshee, she was described, completely indifferent to everything that was going on. She cared about nothing going on in the courtroom. All she cared about was David. At one stage, and rather sickeningly, she was able to get close enough to David to just softly stroke the palm of his hand. Again, not looking at the judge, victims' families, or engaging in proceedings in any way. They both pleaded guilty, the case against them overwhelmingly solid by this point, and they were both sentenced to life in prison on the 3rd of March 1987, never to be released. This next clip is very interesting. It's the public's reaction to the Burnies being let out of the courtroom. Go on, you bastard! You're dirty, 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 you're you stinking bastard. So in that clip, we see Catherine with an absolutely hideous look of contempt on her face and David blowing a kiss to the crowd. David was frequently bashed in jail by other inmates and was segregated from the general population for his own protection. The pair wrote over 2,600 letters to one another in jail, but eventually Catherine stopped writing. David attempted suicide in 1987 In 1992, homicide detectives took him on a drive around Perth. 
giving him a rare glimpse of the outside world in hopes of getting him to loosen his lips about other suspected victims, but he didn't. In 1999, it was alleged by a 23-year-old prisoner known only as Peter that David Burney and another inmate, convicted child sex offender Adrian Barrett, sexually assaulted him. Peter's allegations were seemingly sustained as he was awarded $70,000 in compensation for the assault. In October 2005, David Burney hung himself. He was said to be depressed at the time, having recently had his porn stash found and confiscated from within his cell. His body was unclaimed. No one who he'd ever known wanted anything to do with him, even in death. A month later, he was given a secret pauper's burial by the state government. Catherine Burney is still behind bars in Perth's Bandiup Prison. She's in maximum security and runs the library. She's had parole knocked back numerous times and her file is marked as never to be released. She's exchanged letters with other infamous female killers, such as Myra Hindley, one of the culprits in the Moores murders in England, and US serial killer Eileen Wernos before she died. She has also written to her children, telling them to forget she was their mother. That being said, she continues to try and reach out to them over the years, but they've all cut her off with the thought being she's just trying to line up something for herself should she ever get parole. She is admitted to still loving David Burney despite all his faults and to still being angry at David liking Nolene Patterson. This is decades later. All of her children are victims too, you know. They've had to deal with the fact that their mother is a serial killer. David's daughter too, for that matter. Catherine's son, Peter, he's copped multiple beatings for simply being her son. He's had his teeth knocked out. And he hates her, wished she'd gotten the death penalty, which obviously we don't have here now, uh, but it had only been abolished a couple of years earlier in Western Australia in 1984. Now we get to the discussion of other potential victims. We have three who have been publicly named and a fourth that I'd like to throw in the mix who I came across while looking through the missing persons register. Police are quite convinced that there are more victims of the Burnies. A man named Brian Tennant met with David Burney before he died, and Burney as good as admitted to Brian that there were more victims. David publicly refuted saying this to Brian, and as we know, never came forward and admitted anything publicly, giving police nothing on that little city drive they took him on before his death. But here's the thing. There was a one-year gap between when David stalked Audrey Schofield at the real estate agency and the Burney's first known victim being Mary Nielsen. The theory goes that the stalking of Audrey didn't work, so they began refining their techniques, picking up people looking for lifts, getting Catherine to act as the bait, etc. But why wait for a whole year to do that, when after the first attack, we saw timeframes between attacks shrink from 14 days to 10 and then down to 4? Why wait a whole year after the stalking attempt? Well, perhaps they didn't. The first we'll discuss is the disappearance of Cheryl Renwick. Cheryl was a 33-year-old single mother of two. She went missing in May of 1986, so some five months earlier than Mary Nielsen. Cheryl had been getting stalked by a couple. It was said by her daughter Michelle and her friend Kylie. This female had come to their house a number of times, and Michelle and Kylie both later confirmed that the woman looked exactly like photos of Catherine Burney. Cheryl even moved house. But this mysterious couple located her, persisted with phone calls, and eventually Cheryl vanished mysteriously, never to be seen again, 
sometime between May 25th and 26th, 1986. A long-sleeved, round-necked top was recovered by police when gathering evidence in their case against the Burnies. And Cheryl's daughter, Michelle, confirmed this top was actually hers and that her mum used to borrow it from time to time. Despite this, there was nothing else linking the Burnies and they were never charged for her murder. Cheryl's body has never been found, but her car was located at the airport. Again, no evidence was discovered, but the tyres were covered in sand. Michelle thought this was strange as her mum was not a beachgoer, but it was said that the soil out in some of these areas the Burnies had disposed of uh, bodies was quite sandy in some areas. If the Burnies did have something to do with Cheryl's disappearance, this would potentially make her their first victim. Such a shame for Michelle, her younger sister, and the Renwick family. Our thoughts are with them. The next person we want to talk about is Barbara Weston. Barbara disappeared on June 27th, 1986, a month or so after Cheryl. She was a 38-year-old mother of two, last seen leaving Perth Saloon Tavern, and she was a known hitchhiker. Barbara's disappearance was made public, as was Cheryl's, and Denise Brown's, which we discussed earlier. It was really these three cases that the media began linking and police refused to connect publicly to begin with. Barbara's body was found, however, quite some time later. Her killer or killers had removed her jewellery and other personal effects and placed them alongside Barbara's grave, which was said to be one of the Burney's trademarks. Vince Kadich took David Burney to the site where Barbara's body was found during that little road trip they took him on, but he didn't say anything at all when they got to the location. The third potential victim that's been publicly named is quite interesting in the difference that it presents. 12-year-old Lisa Mott disappeared in the West Australian town of Collie on October 30, 1980, so some six years before the spate of murders and disappearances we've discussed to this point. Lisa was last seen around 8.30pm in the main drag of Collie, waiting to be picked up by a family friend to head to a basketball game before returning home later that evening. It was reported that she was last seen getting into a yellow panel van. David Burney lived and worked in nearby Bunbury at this time. He was working as a crane driver and apparently he also drove a similar yellowish coloured panel van. Now obviously we have a couple of things lining up here but it's easy to get carried away in hindsight knowing what we do about David Burney. David's ex-wife, Kerry, provided him with an alibi much later down the track for this day, saying without a shadow of a doubt that he was at home with her that day working in the garage and there was no way he could have ducked out, driven to Collie and done this. Alongside this, many point to the time frame and the different victim type in this disappearance. What I'd say in response is, I don't think David Burney was particularly fussy when it came to the age of his victims. Keeping in mind during their spree, it was actually Catherine who gave the green light on if they were going to keep this one or let them go. If we go back in time to when it was just David picking his targets, well, he picked a 70-odd-year-old woman when he was at the horse stables, and if you believe it, his own brother Jamie at one point too. And he also brought a 16-year-old girl home to live with his wife Kerry and their daughter. So... Age wasn't an issue for David Burney, and it's no stretch to think this little slimy bag of manure would have abducted a 12-year-old girl. Again, our thoughts are with both Barbara Weston and Lisa Mott's families. The last one we're going to mention is not publicly linked to the Burneys anywhere I can really see, except for one article specifically discussing uh, this lady's disappearance, 
and that the Bernies had been ruled out on victim type, but I disagree with that sentiment. Sharon Fulton was last seen on the 18th of March in 1986. She was 39 years old, married and a mother. She dropped her three-year-old son off at a friend's place around 9.30am in the morning and was heading to an appointment in Perth before attending a friend's party sometime after 11am. This must have been something like a Tupperware party perhaps or a small social gathering for this time of day. Whatever it was, she wasn't expected to be there for long. Her husband picked up their son and returned home from work just before midday, expecting Sharon to be there. She wasn't, and he subsequently reported her missing. No trace of Sharon Fulton has ever been discovered and no person or persons identified in connection with her disappearance. Why Sharon was disregarded as being a different victim type, I'm not sure. She was a mother in her 30s and only a year older than Barbara Weston. And if we follow that trend, the Bernie's known victims and potential victims may well have started out older and gradually gotten younger as they figured out their preference and they got more confident. Sharon is certainly closer in victim type than 12-year-old Lisa Mott, although that's generally theorised that David may have acted solo on that occasion. But the basic facts with Sharon's disappearance are compelling. The timeline makes sense. Just a few months after Audrey Schofield's stalking, same area, a couple of months before Cheryl Renwick's disappearance, uh, she was out and about at the time too, so theoretically could have been abducted or lured into some, some kind of scenario. So we have potentially double the amount of victims here. And if Sharon's disappearance is connected to the Bernie spree, she would actually supersede Cheryl Renwick as their first victim. And interestingly, Chloe, I looked up the sale history of number three Morehouse Street over the years. It's sold half a dozen times since and has been tastefully renovated in recent times. It's actually just sold again at the time of this recording. It appears to be under offer. So just an interesting little point to finish on there. But when it comes to this horrifying, infamous case, that's about it, Chloe. That's the case of the Morehouse murders and the serial killer couple, David and Catherine Burney. What a sick and twisted case of two really messed up people. So many victims and such little regard for human life. It always boggles my mind to read about people that treat other people as disposable. The thing that sticks out to me and makes me sick is the notes and the notebook that Catherine made during the rapes and how that was somehow meant to help them and their lifestyle. How awful. I also find the reason for their sex life being bettered as a sickening excuse for the kind of behaviour they participated in. There are plenty of people with high sex drives who spend their whole life having plenty of consensual sex and not raping someone. And as many people will know, rape is most often not about sex at all. It's about the power held over the person. I can't help to think about the signs of dysfunction David showed growing up too and if there were warning signs there. Catherine less so as a child but she definitely had a traumatic upbringing. No excuse for what they did, but I do wonder if it was a different time and they were given some support. Looking at how they both grew up and living, it's pretty clear this wouldn't be an option for either of them. I don't have much else to speculate on this one. It's just so awful and so sad and I'm so sad for all of the victims and their families. Yeah, well, look, I don't really have too many thoughts to add, Chloe. I probably uh, agree with everything you've said there and... uh same sentiment really as as always, um, just feel very sorry for these families and 
the victims and the amount of people that have been affected uh, outside of that. I mean, even like you said, thinking about the uh, you know, their children as well and and the effects um, of being connected to them. Our thoughts are with all the victims and their families, but also the ones that we don't know about. I know we've you know there's been three publicly named. We've mentioned an extra one there. I think there could be even more. Like if 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 David's connected, I think he may well have had, have a history of offending. Um, whether it's murders or, or not, but certainly attacks um, yeah. years years beforehand. I, I I don't see this coming out of nowhere for a guy like him. So um, very very disturbing. Um, yeah, look, a yeah, big case. Uh, we've been you know we've been working up to this one, and we've had a few people wanting to do something in WA. So uh, hopefully this fits the bill, and we've we've done it uh, justice, so to speak. But um, by the same token, I'm more than happy to put this one behind us. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I tend to agree. Well, on that note, um, let's move on to happy thoughts. What's your happy thought this week? Uh, I'm just going to say reaching 50 episodes. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a, yeah, a bit of a milestone and uh, glad to still be here and uh, hopefully uh, we can continue on strong and make it to 100. <laughs> yeah. It um, definitely seems like 50 isn't much for in number terms, but it's really hard to get to 50. I feel like we've been doing this for a long time already. I, when we first yeah. started, I thought, yeah, easy. Like we'll do 50 in, you know, a couple of months. But, man, <laughs> it is no yeah. easy challenge. <laughs> um, mine is that gyms are back open in Victoria. So my gym opened um, Monday just gone. And I said to you before we started that just being able to turn up and have someone else tell me what to do to exercise is the best. I've been doing stuff at home. But, you know, you kind of know the same couple of things to do and I'm so sick of myself and workouts. I'm just, I mean, PTs, PTs, beauties and chefs, um, beauticians, sorry, and chefs are my new heroes after all of this and like <laughs> nurses and cleaners and all of the vital people as well. But seriously, those people that do the things that I definitely can't do, oh, I love them. <laughs> uh, very good. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. That's it from us this week. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and for your continued support, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bastard. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 